HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The Welcome back to The Speakeasy. I'm Damon Bolte. I'm Southern Teague. And I'm Greg Benson. And happy day after Election Day, fellas. Hell yeah. Politics moving at full steam. (laughs) Things are going uh, pretty well, it seems. You were out there doing some work, right? I was, yeah. I was on the platform at 59th Street where the the local R transfers to the Express N. I actually thought this was very smart. I was at something for my local city councilman who, A, fucking rules, and B fucking crushed his opponent yesterday. Mm-hmm. Uh, his name's Justin Brannon. He's great. A lot of fun. Very practical. Also a former punk rocker. Uh, he was the front man for a band called Most Precious Blood before he got into politics. So he looks like a complete political egghead until he rolls up his sleeves and you realize his whole body is just covered in tattoos. Great. So. It was real fun to be out there uh, stumping for him, walking up and down the platform, handing out literature. And um, it was nice to see the results roll in that he actually got a pretty handy victory, which was an improvement over the guy stumped for last year. But it's always nice to see also, you know, these local unglamorous races are obviously not going to get the coverage that, you know, Donald Trump's 19th indictment or whatever the fuck is going to get. But they do matter, and it's nice to see people showing up and putting in the work and voting and uh, actually taking an interest. It's yeah. I'm going to be everyone's inner Lisa Simpson today and say it was actually kind of inspiring to see people taking a part in like the uh, one of the unsexy elections. Um, but there's also a lot of cool stuff on the ballot up and down, uh, you know, the uh, up and down the ballot and across the United States this past week. Um, Ohio both mm-hmm. defended abortion rights and legalized weed. So that's cool. Uh, my home state of Virginia gave a big middle finger to our shitty Republican yep. governor, which is also so great. That. And uh, there's actually something interesting happening in our industry uh, when it comes to labor relations. And Southern, you're the one who kind of uh, sent around a text about this last night. What, why don't you tell us what it is? Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, sort of close to me, but not exactly. Um, you know, Death and Company, which is just down the street from Amori Margo and has been for, you know, the 12 years we've been there. They've been there longer than us. Um, uh, from every indication, it, it appears that they're um, unionizing their shop. 
Um, there's a new uh, Instagram handle out there that's uh, uh, Death & Co. United Workers or something. I, I forget what the handle is. We can look it up and get it in the show notes. But uh, they've only posted two posts, and one of them was their open letter to the company that Death & Co. Uh, uh, is owned by, which is Gin & Luck. Uh, and uh, it's you know sort of stating their opening salvo about how they want to unionize, and it looks to me like it's going to go forward. Um, I don't see any reason that it wouldn't, and I think that this is pretty exciting news in our sector to see. You know, we we we've all seen you know kind of Starbucks and things like that are kind of unionizing. I think that's great. I'm, I'm pro labor. I'm pro union. I'm pro people um, getting what they you know deserve for the work that they put in. Um, so I think this is the first time that we're seeing this happen in you know, sort of craft cocktail nerdy world that we live in. And I, I'm pretty excited by it. And I'm also kind of excited by the notion that it's happening at a place that is, you know, storied history, pretty well established and well known kind of uh, in in the field. And, uh, um, you know, kind of they, they've certainly made their mark. And now it's kind of like iconic that they're kind of maybe the first one to sort of do this as well. I don't have any further information, really. I just thought it was quite interesting. I want to share it with you guys. And I'm glad we're talking about it here for a moment. But I don't really know what's next, but I'm certainly going to be watching. Yeah, the the post kind of just popped up on my, and I'm sure dozens, if not hundreds of other Instagram feeds out there. And that was kind of we how we heard about it. They're keeping it. I think I think the rollout is good and sort of announcing it like we're here, but also keeping a little bit of, you know, the inner workings under wraps, which I think is good. But I think it'll be interesting to see how these two worlds interact, because when I think of, you know, the like 1970s, like Jimmy Hoffa era of unions, we didn't have craft cocktail bars back then. No one was mixing up like Oaxaca old fashions mm-hmm. for those Teamster meetings. So, you know, I mean, I've certainly been pumping the air every time I read a news article about Starbucks or Amazon unionizing, but it would be really interesting, I think, to see how some of these smaller, more kind of, uh, you know, boutique shops forming a union is is going to go. Yeah, my assumption is that they'll kind of need to band together, right? Um, Starbucks and, and Amazon have, you know, tons and tons of locations and outlets and employees and et cetera. But if you're a craft cocktail bar in, in my favorite city, Des Moines, Iowa, uh, and you're a single standalone <laughs> mom and pop owned, uh, and, and your, your, your crew tries to unionize and, and, and well, they should, uh, but you've got, again, Deathco in East Village only has 17 employees. Um, if you, you know, you've only got a handful of employees, but they want to unionize and they should. My assumption is they'll need to kind of like to gain bargaining strength, to gain, um, you know, power over yourself as a as a uh, employee and a worker. I think they'll have to look to other local craft cocktail bars to create a larger union based group, right? That's sort of how it works. Well, I think it's also interesting that we're approaching an era of this sort of franchised cocktail bar. I don't want to say franchise because that feels like it's a dirty word, but you know, there's not just Death and Company here in New York, there's Death and Company Denver, there's Death and Company LA, there's Death and Company DC, and they've been involved in a couple of other projects in in states as as unexpected as Wyoming, even. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, and then and they're not the only ones, you know, like you've got uh, Dead Rabbit opening up some new spots. Uh, there are some cool bars from Europe that are coming over here that I'm really excited to get here. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in that era, I think it's, you know, with these concepts and these cultures kind of multiplying, which honestly I think is, is, you know, an interesting thing to watch. I think you need to have 
sort of a, I, I love the idea of having kind of a organized, unionized representative body that says, hey, you know, this is who we are and this is what we stand for. And this is the culture that we want to keep and preserve to continue providing, you know, the best experience for the guests and keep everyone happy. Like one of my favorite, one of my least favorite uh, arguments about labor unions is that it treats them like a zero sum game. And I don't think that they are. Like, I think that if you have a good relationship between the employee and the labor union, everyone can benefit. Exactly. You know, study after study after study shows that motivated, engaged employees who enjoy where they work perform better. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a necessary pushback against the kind of self-defeating parasitic nature of capitalism if left totally unchecked that you have these unions to say hey you know we're we're going to advocate for our side and we're going to say how we you know we're going to express our opinions in an organized way and we're going to work to make this better which is ultimately what you the owner should want mm-hmm. yeah 100% agree uh, again i'm i'm pro labor i'm pro um uh, union, I think it's, I, you know, I think it's, we're overdue for, for having it come along. Uh, and I'm glad that it's coming. And again, I'm glad that an iconic place like Death Co is picking up the uh, torch and, and going to light the way forward. Because I think that, uh, you know, again, if, if my, uh, my favorite local craft cocktail bar in Des Moines, Iowa did this, it probably wouldn't get any coverage. You know, I haven't read the article yet, but I know it came out in Eater about this. So, so soon this will kind of splash all over. Um, and we'll see, we'll, we'll all be watching and, and hope and being hopeful about the positive results that come from it. Yeah, it's a it's a new world, you know. This is a this a is a first, world. and I I um, my hats off to the folks that are organizing this. I think that they're going to have a lot of work to do to kind of figure out the norms because they're blazing a new trail and uh, they're really out there, you know, trying to to create a new and better future as we move into a new era of cocktail bars. And I think that's great. Yeah. Um, but speaking of labor and speaking of going out and creating things. Um, Ooh, good, good segue, Greg. Thanks, everybody. <laughs> yeah. uh, well done. Joining us today in the studio, we have Danielle Goldtooth and Alan Moore. They are running a... Uh, Danielle is part of the Dene Nation, and together they're running a operation that's moving uh, foraging and mixology and food sovereignty into another bold new world of just the culinary experience and uh, experimenting with some bold techniques. So we're really, really excited to have you two on the show and joining us. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you definitely for having us. So we're, we're super excited to have you two on because uh, you're big in the food sovereignty movement, which I think is a bit of a, a bit of a new term. At least it was for me when uh, I was first introduced to you two. So for the listener real quick, can you give them a little rundown of what food sovereignty is? Yeah, definitely. Um, when we're talking about food sovereignty, we're talking about um, ecological um, agriculture being forefront in that kind of a, a talking about more more green agriculture works, talking about where our ingredient comes from a lot, a lot more, um, hitting places closer to home and just being really um, valuing those uh, those items and those uh, those things that you can't get anywhere else, and um, just generally just uh, kind of trying to push forward with the practices that were over millennia old. When you're talking about indigenous nations in their regions, uh, talking about their own food, talking about their own food pathways, and kind of tapping into that as a greater community that surrounds them to 
implement um, something that's going to be beneficial to the earth as well as our our culinary and our uh, our ways forward as we as we go through all of this uh, change, especially at a global level when you're talking about global warming or any of these these things. This is kind of an answer to to some of those uh, those things that people have been kind of worrying about right now. You know what, uh, Alan has to say about any of that. <laughs> um, to me, when we're talking about food sovereignty, we're talking about the ability uh, to feed yourself independent from your government, uh, independent from the, the, the big agriculture industries, um, which, which really uh, gives us the ability to put more nutrients into the food um, and do a, a whole ton of good for the environment all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, this sounds a lot like, of course, uh, farm to table, which we're all kind of quite accustomed to, but with like an extra emphasis on like separating yourself from greater entities and taking back some control. Is that is that the way I should think about this? When we, we we've worked at a, a lot of restaurants and we've uh, we've noticed that a lot of even the farm to fork restaurants are, are farm to fork to a degree. Um, they'll, they'll take it as far as uh, knowing a couple of farmers and uh, maybe a couple of the vegetables that 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 end up on their menu uh, are locally sourced. Um, but as we know in our industry, it, it becomes kind of a little bit difficult to rip ourselves away and uh, completely immerse ourselves in the farmer's lifestyle in order to understand what it is that we're putting on our plate to meet more farmers, to be able to put more of that produce on, onto uh, the, the plates that we serve out. Um, so COVID kind of gave us the opportunity to uh, figure it out, to get out the door and uh, go meet these farmers, go meet these ranchers and uh, actually become the farmers and the ranchers ourselves. So we could really chase that rabbit down the hole and figure out what exactly it takes to put that entire meal on that plate uh, from local sources. But absolutely. Yes. Like, like you said, like just taking that opportunity to take back some of that power for yourself that we have actually given up um, ourselves uh, for convenience in a lot of ways, like being able to grow our own food is a right that we have and a right that we don't necessarily take. And I understand that there's like accessibility issues and everything to go with that, but it's not even something that we necessarily think about to a larger degree. But yes, I, I think that um, being responsible for your own food is definitely one of those uh, one of those portions that we we talk about. It's a hell of a challenge, too. I mean, you know, when you're talking about the the, the restaurants that are farm to table or, or so clean, I mean, yeah, you can't be a hundred percent. A lot of them can't uh, or or aren't rather. I mean, I grew up on a farm in Southwest Oklahoma. Uh, we raised cattle and chickens. We grew wheat. You know, like we we had. A, Big garden, uh, radishes taste different when you pull them out of the ground and eat them, you know, like they're way better, way spicier. I always say this, me and Sean Brock, we had like a two hour gush session over a bottle of whiskey talking about radishes. And yes, you can talk about <laughs> radishes for two hours, especially with a bottle of whiskey. Um, we, we, we but the thing is, the other day, uh, we just did our fall dinner with a garden bar not too long ago. And uh, we actually put radishes that we pulled out of our garden onto that that plate right there. So oh, it's yeah. definitely what we're talking about. <laughs> but yeah, it was like one of those things where, like, you know, we ate a lot of steaks and a lot of hamburgers because we we raised cattle. And but you know, then when it was lasagna night, uh, you know, we drove to the next town over where the nearest grocery store was, and my mom would buy the lasagna noodles. Even though we grew wheat, we could we could we could have milled 
had made flour and like, you know, we could have like done the pasta from scratch, but I think that was the first thing I did as an adult was like, learn how to make pasta because I was like, all right, this is the one thing we didn't do. Uh, or one of the things we didn't do as a kid, but you know, just growing up that way, it also, and you're in, you're currently in Shiprock, New Mexico, right? Yes. Um, that is correct. Okay. So, I mean, like that's, that is the greatest area on the planet to me and, and like growing up there, and like going there all the time, it's just like the food and the culture is just extremely special. So I love that you're you're working on this there. Um, I do have to ask if you're like uh, a red, green or Christmas uh, person um, when it comes to your chili. <laughs> Definitely Christmas. I love the I love yeah. the green chili and the red chili. And if I'm going yep. to okay, get cool. on there, like that's that's how it's going to go. <laughs> okay, good. But yeah, so like I mean, I guess for for. Uh, for like, I, I want to know like what's some of the most extreme stuff that you're doing, uh, like that is, uh, you know, kind of like the hardest challenges uh, of what what you're working on and providing. Like, what have some of those been, or what are some of them? I, I think uh, one of my largest ch- challenges has been like really making that connection sometimes, and actually wanting to motivate myself to do the work. I mean, honestly, I mean yeah. that, that sounds crazy, but like. When you're doing the the physical actual work of like the farming and you're there every day and you're like doing the hoeing and all of that and to see the vision at the end of the day sometimes just brings me into tears because like it's so hard sometimes getting there <laughs> like and then oh, yeah. there, there's a huge learning curve too um so we're learning traditional farming from a few mentors here in the shiprock area And there's not just a language barrier on occasion for some of the things that we're learning, but there's also like a cultural barrier, especially like Alan has to deal with a lot of middle space these days, um, coming into a place where he's completely the minority and, you know, inundating his lifestyle into what my culture is. And like to say that I don't appreciate what he does is just like, it's just amazing what he does on a daily basis, just living in, in the environment with us and like going at it every day and my grandfather can be a bit gruff and I think right now he's like in his he's getting closer to 90 you know and so like he'd rather speak in Navajo a lot of the time or you know and I'm his princess so he never yells at me (laughs) (laughs) yeah so so, uh, Alan being the in-law has a lot of implications for him as well as like other duties and social duties like coming with the household and everything too so I think that that's been one of the one of the things that we have to navigate as a biracial couple is even just coming home to the reservation and dealing with some of those issues. Just um, social social issues like that have been kind of interesting going through. But everyone that we've been coming through, I think, has been very welcoming and uh, curious about what the heck we're doing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. I would I would point out, you know, um, I have to think about this a lot in my life and I'm sure that all of us do. <clears throat> you know, nothing cool is easy. You know, if surfing was easy, then every idiot on the beach would be out in the water, right? It's not, it's not, it's not easy, but it's real cool. Um, and I think that what you're doing is not easy because it's cool. So I would, I would maybe keep that in the back of your mind and help you keep moving forward. Um, yeah. And then, you know, uh, the, the notes that I have here, I, I would, I want to talk to you about this. Uh, I want to know about the mistake melons. Talk to me, <laughs> talk to me about some mistakes and particularly mistake melons. Yes. Um, so. When you're doing agriculture, there's certain things that you're not allowed to plant next to each other because they'll cross pollinate. And so we had a little bit of a debacle with uh, some some of our seeds getting mixed up. And so this season we planted um, uh, what were they English English cucumbers right next to our Kershaw melons. 
And so the plants that came out were not as expected. They were uh, the babies of the two <laughs> together. And um, so we, our, we, yeah. Our cucumbers were nice and round. Um, <laughs> our, our melons were, were uh, our melons were some of the best tasting cucumbers I think I've had. <laughs> it sounds well, yeah, awesome, like, actually. Yeah, Large format yeah, like, cucumber, I, that's pretty I, cool. <laughs> yeah, I remember hearing about this and thinking like, wow, okay, so it's a, it's a cucumber the size of a watermelon? Like, sign me up. That sounds amazing. You know, it, re- it reminds me of The Simpsons with tomacco. Oh, remember yes. that episode? They <laughs> the tomato, 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 tomato. Yes. <laughs> Tastes like burning. Um, but like the, the, the opposite direction, good. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yes, but we ended up we did end up putting it on a plate and uh, serving it up, and um, the the guests who were were enjoying it were like, "Oh, so what is this?" So I was telling about it, They're like, "Oh, so it's a mistake melon." We're like, "Yes, that's exactly what it is. It is a mistake melon." Awesome. <laughs> you know, sometimes these mistakes lead to uh, um, a happy happy new product. Uh, not, doesn't sound Spotlight like it did it this time, but it, yeah, exactly. it doesn't sound like it did it in this occasion. But uh, you know that could have that could have worked in your favor. Um, but also, you you know you never. Um, you know, I'm full of quotes today, but you know we never we never fail. Uh, uh, we learn, right? That's that's the way to go. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, most definitely. Well, I think it's time for a break. So there, I think we should uh, take take a quick break and hear from our sponsors and come back. Because I want to get this commercial break out of the way as quickly as possible so we can get back to this conversation. Yeah, heck yeah. Let's do it. All right. So we'll be back in just a few. You're listening to the Speakeasy, and we are having a ball, and we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, listeners. We wanted to let you know that Heritage Radio Network's Julia Child Fellowship application is now open. The fellowship offers an enriching experience for aspiring food writers and journalists who share our passion for food systems change. The fellowship is a great way to progress in the field of food journalism and digital media and will start in early January 2024. This fellowship will provide participants with hands-on experience, mentorship, and access to an extensive network of industry professionals. The application deadline is November 27, 2023. Check out heritageradionetwork.org and click on the Julia Child Foundation Writing Fellowship link to learn more. If you or someone you know has interest in food studies and journalism, this might be a great fit. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and check out the application today. Thank you. And we are back. You're listening to The Speakeasy on Heritage Radio Network. Uh, And today we're talking to some cool uh, foragers uh, from the uh, from a company called, and I'm going to butcher it. I know you, you gave me coaching earlier, but I'm still probably going to ruin it. De Ina, is that correct? De Ina, and it De means uh, yes. I it was means focused the- on that second half more than I was the first half. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. It means uh, this life in Dene, and mm-hmm. uh, we really chose that name because uh, you only get the one life. You only get the one chance to be able to be a caretaker for what we're doing right now on this beautiful planet. And uh, we're just going to do our best job at uh, finding our space and be able to caretake for that area and take care of our neighbors. That's really what we want to do. Make sure that we're leaving a better world for our children. Yeah, of course. I mean, that's for the sure. goal for all of us, I hope. That's that's what mm-hmm. Greg's out there stumping for and we're all out here voting for. Um, well, speaking of your neighbors and people who aren't necessarily involved in what you're doing, but but have a you, you know passing fascination, as you said, uh, so many people are, are trying to figure out what the heck it is you're doing. Sounds like you're doing quite a bit of foraging. And it, and also, I see here in my notes that you're trying to create experiences for non-foragers so you can show them 
what that sort of style of of looking around for for foodstuffs is all about. Can we talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's a project that we've been working on for a little bit. It's uh, something that we've been, has been like in a talk in the talking phase for probably over a year now. We're finally getting to a point where we're like, okay, if we're going to do this, we probably should do this like really quickly, really soon. So we're planning on a three day series, maybe over a three day weekend type situation, um, and doing a kind of like a culturally appropriate foraging trip for people who are wanting to learn foraging. Uh, maybe in the Arizona region, maybe in the New Mexico region, New Mexico, Colorado region, in the places that were very near and dear to our hearts and where we've really kind of like made our stamp on uh, where we've been doing our foraging and such and give people some of those um, those skills. Even uh, some of the skills that we want to give is like, how do you find the information to be able to do these? Because like, we know that we're probably... We're, we're good foragers, but we're not the best. And that's what we strive for is to find the knowledge and then to be able to pass that knowledge on. And without people who are willing to actually start teaching, it gets harder and harder to, you know, find sort of the, those uh, those situations. So this is me showing my ass as a, a member of the coastal elite. But I when I think of foraging, I think of, you know, like forested places like densely wooded there's a lot of underbrush like my my knee-jerk reaction which i'm not proud of when i heard about this foraging trip was well i mean sure you can forage in prospect park but arizona and new mexico gee what are you going to find out there in the desert so like i i'm i'm very curious what what does one find out there and what sort of um experience do you anticipate for the folks that are going to be coming along on this journey with you so when we talk about Arizona, um, a lot of people immediately put their mind to desert. That's what we have is desert. It's, it's dry dirt. We have cactus. Everything out here wants to hurt you. And uh, to a degree, that's true. Um, but we, we have a lot of different little microclimates. Um, we have uh, heavily, heavily wooded areas a little up north, um, canyons with, uh, with a lot of foliage down in the southern areas but even in those dry areas we have to think about the fact that there are people who lived in these lands before us and they were able to to survive on those lands now one of the big things is um when we're talking about foraging short of a survival situation you're not going to be able to go out into into the wilderness and just live off of what you can forage i, I mean it can be done uh, if needed but foraging is a little bit more of a, a supplement. Uh, we're, we're still looking at all of the, the ranchers and the farmers back here to, to complete that plate. Uh, but as far as what's out there, um, cactuses give out all kinds of amazing fruits. Um, we have the, the prickly pear, uh, which, which is uh, known as the tuna, the tuna of the desert. Uh, prickly pear is <laughs> yeah. one of the best tasting fruits that I've had. Saguaro fruit. Uh, the only reason that I'm able to pick a, a saguaro fruit ever is because I go out with Daniel. Um, <laughs> onions, carrots, tomato, I'm sorry, potatoes. Uh, those are all things that you could find out in different elevations. Um, chili peppers originated from out here in our area. Um, you've got pinyons, you have, uh, you know, sumac, you have... Uh... In some of the higher areas, you have a. We actually ran across an old forgotten orchard in Colorado doing some foraging. Like there's there's so many different things that are that are happening as far as like in the foraging world. It's just phenomenal. And I think one thing. I mean, to, uh, 
to know surviving in Chaco Canyon to me is just like one of the craziest phenomenon, you know, like <laughs> when we, when we, when you're, when you do any research on Chaco Canyon for those listeners who haven't watched a bunch of like ancient aliens and things like that. Um, <laughs> it's just like, it's crazy. The the way that they're building uh, out in these the, the, the dwellings and the cliffs and all this stuff. You're like, like what were they eating? But like what you're explaining right now is what they were what they were finding and eating. Right. You know, it's like, right. it's wild to me. Sorry. No, it's, it's crazy. I think it's, it, I think it's crazy too. And I think the thing that people forget about, especially the Sonoran desert is I think it has one of the highest, um, like amount of species in the world or something like that. Animals and like life forms and such in, in that Florida desert. Yeah. The flora and fauna in the desert of the Sonoran desert is like the highest in the world. Which is like insanity to me. Yeah. <laughs> so there's there's so many so many different things that are available to us that we don't even necessarily know. But there's also the the ways that we have to be able to procure these items, and then the way that we're actually able to store them and um, make them edible. There's other elements that go into that. Danielle talked a little bit about uh, the the plant blindness. Um, uh, even a lot of the weeds that pop up in our backyard are the things that we take out of our garden because we don't want them there. Um, we just see them as weeds, but at one point in time, those were that was nutrition. Um, a lot of the dandelions, the uh, there's purslane. a wild mustard, purslane, um, even amaranth. Amaranth uh, grows all over Arizona and New Mexico. And uh, farmers and uh, gardeners alike will look at it and just rip it up from the root and toss it into the into the compost pile. Yeah, fennel grows wild everywhere on the sides yeah. of the roads in, here in Northern California, and I think even further south in California too. But it's just like it, it, it's like I can't believe that they even sell it in grocery stores around here. Fucking <laughs> everywhere, you know. So yeah, I totally get what you're saying. Right, because people yeah. won't take that time to go out there and, and grab it for themselves. Blackberries go everywhere. It's crazy. Yeah. So we're talking about how you're how you're incorporating all these things into the sort of food sovereignty, and you know, I want to at least tie this back to us a little bit. How are you incorporating some of these things, either foraged or or grown on the farms there, into the into the sort of cocktail programs that you're that you're producing? Oh my gosh! So uh, the last dinner that we had, we always have um, paired cocktails. Um, our welcome cocktail was actually done by Aspen Brigham, who just got a uh, best bartender of the year for the Phoenix area, um, which was phenomenal. But she did a um, I can't remember the name of her, her cocktail right off, but it was uh, one that had won uh, some really nice awards. And she did that with some like Bombay gin. And then um, the other thing. Oh, no. Was it Bombay or was it Hendrix? two very different companies. I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but the, the other thing that, uh, that we did, uh, the way that we've been incorporating it is, uh, Alan helps me make these like amazing shrubs. And so for the lost orchard, um, we had this, uh, apple shrub that we used a caramel that he had made and made this like gorgeous shrub and added, uh, I think it was Zacapa and Zaya blend of those two together and made it into a daiquiri that ended up just being Ooh. phenomenal. Um, the other way that we did that uh, most recently was we actually did a, an acorn syrup. Um, so we did the roasting off the acorns and that actually um, accompanied a sheep's milk cheesecake with a um, acorn and amaranth flour crust on the bottom, making the entire meal actually gluten-free. 
And that was in celebration of an Indigenous Heritage Month at the beginning of the month. We opened up the month with that on November 1st. So just very recently over at Garden Bar. Amazing. So, yeah, so we got the farming, the foraging, and all of the elements done at this one dinner. And it was just, oh, it was so beautiful. (laughs) Very, very heartfelt. I can't wait to be at the next one, or especially this camp that you're talking about for three days. Uh, That's like totally totally my dream. <laughs> yes, definitely. Cause we're also wanting to make sure that we're hitting the culinary uh, element of it on the, on the foraging trip itself, because if you're going to come out with us, one of the draw, one of the, the best things about that is that you have the two of us to be there creating cocktails and cooking for you during the, during the trip. So that's uh, one of the things that we're really wanting to, to do and make it a really nice experience where you're actually able to see where this food's coming from, have a hand in the food system and be able to just, uh, enjoy something a little bit easier from the the minds of us where you don't have to work so hard at it, but you're able to like, just enjoy it. All the perks. Yeah. Can I, can I though? <laughs> like, yeah. Bar back yeah, slash you, sous chef. <laughs> if you, you, know what, if yeah, you need if, three beta if, testers. If, if you all want to come out for, for a foraging trip, we will take you on one. Just buy the food. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. No, we'll, we'll, we'll sign the waivers. We'll be like, yeah, no, I'd, I, I'd be perfectly content if this is like that he was never seen again. It's like, well, you know, he died happy at least. <laughs> Um, I do kind of want to ask, and this is a, a, a big macro question, and maybe I've got this on my mind because of all the political stuff I was gabbing about at the top of the show, but I did sort of want to ask about uh, your vision, I guess, for the future of these movements for like food sovereignty and foraging and stuff like that. Because I think that while a lot of these movements have their hearts in the right place and are grounded in uh, sustainable ideas, I think they have this sheen on them where the same people that will, you know, that get really into foraging are the same people who will go out and buy the same like foraged cucumber from Whole Foods for 20 bucks, right? And it's kind of a problem that I think liberalism in general has of, you know, I love what we're doing, but I hate the way we're doing it. Like we're all about, you know, uh, creating sustainable, equitable, uh, um, justice-based food systems, but we're doing it in a way that has this kind of, you know, you have to have a huge amount of disposable income in order to even get in on this trend. So I sort of wanted to ask your your opinion on it, because you seem to have so much respect for where, you know, not only where our food comes from, but just kind of like the surrounding areas that that have created these amazing plants and nurtured them through millions of years of evolution. I sort of want to get your take on where things might go from here. I, I think that one of the biggest things that is going to be coming and it's going to be, you know, devastating, honestly, is the fact that our convenience is going to become inconvenient for us at some point in time. And at that point in time, our intentionality for change is going to have to change. The attitude that we have towards change is going to have to change. And our actions are going to have to start backing our words. And I think that that's really where, where we are as a, as, a, as a civilization. We've come to a point where our one-time use type situations are having to come to an end. When we talk about our oceans, when we talk about the earth as a whole, Um, When you're talking about indigenous nations holding down um, exactly what you're talking about, this knowledge that they have been able to stay in a place for over a millennia without utilizing or taking up all of the all of the natural resources to that area. uh, 
when we're talking about that, we're talking about people who have doctorate level academia work with thousands of years of research backing them. And yet we're not taking time to actually listen to these, uh, to the, to the knowledge keepers in that type of sense. And there's going to have to be a reckoning. And once that reckoning happens, there's going to be more and more people wanting this knowledge without necessarily the tools or the, the knowledge on how to utilize it. And I think that's really where, where we're at right now is people are starting to become curious about it because our lives are coming to a point where our conveniences are getting in our way of actually living. And we'll, we'll have to see what happens at that point in time. Um, I think that we're at a teeter-totter kind of situation. And I love our craft world because that's, you know, that's the world that I love to live in. But I also, and I love the fact that a lot of us are coming back to this realization of coming back down to the actual ingredient and how it's, how it's being created. And once we're, once we're there and we finally find the ground again, I feel like we can start building up that foundation again. I mean, I'm a worst case scenario guy, but to me, it's, it sounds a little bit like in 30 years and we're all foraging through like, you know, the wreckage of the zombie apocalypse, y'all are going to be damn glad that I told you how to make acorns <laughs> into, into, a, into a palatable soup, you know? <laughs> I mean, in some, in some cases, but the thing is, is that right now we have such great technology that I feel like we're going to be able to figure out how this education is going to work better for all of us, work best for all of us. And I feel like we've really used the technologies of today for our entertainment purposes rather than utilizing it for 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 greater good. I mean, like I doom scroll all the time. It's one of the worst things that I probably do with my time. My husband's sitting here, you know, nodding his head at me. <laughs> and like uh, it's you know, the worst. <laughs> but it's 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 um I feel like we can definitely utilize some of these these uh, things that we're doing right now for for betterment. And it's just really a matter of almost unplugging. Sometimes when I come back into the city, I feel like I'm being plugged into the matrix type situation and I'm actually living in the real world out here on the reservation. Like, I, I, I don't know how to how to equate all of that better than saying something like that. Um, I don't know. I think that time's just going to have to tell. And if we have these uh, survival skills, they'll they'll you know, whether they're just really cool things to know and do, which is awesome for us, or if they, they end up being something that we're actually going to have to utilize is kind of a scary thought too. Either way, I'd just rather be prepared. <laughs> I think what it really comes down to is like getting just to me, like where you're at right now, New Mexico, it's a very spiritual place. And I think people have lost a lot of spirit, uh, not, not talking about, you know, spirit like alcohol spirit um oh yeah we got yeah, that we got, we got that like you know too too much of it sometimes but it's, <laughs> it's really about getting like like you said like unplugging and getting into the real world which is like where you're at right now and you know like getting away from the screens and or at least using them for for good you know and and educating yourself and like how do i prepare a prickly pear you know that kind of stuff that's 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 good use of uh, technology but yeah i mean like I just, there's, there's so much amazing culture and history in this world, especially when it comes to food and drinks and just, you know, and those are things that also bring us together. So we should really tap into it and, you know, just kind of at the very least make ourselves better people uh, to other people with this as a conduit for that purpose. Right. Yeah. Like, you know, 
And I think it's really cool because that's what you guys are doing right now. You know, bringing us on. We appreciate uh, being able to to speak what what our truths are as far as this goes, how we're having our fun, how we're deciding to to utilize our time in this time and space is really, you know, kind of fun. And then hearing about everything that's happening out in the rest of our industry and such, too, is just, you know, really enlightening how we're we're doing this as a as a making a difference because food food and drink hospitality is such a huge culture like we run the world yeah we run the world mm-hmm. that's how we that's what we think and so the more that we we look at our ingredients and in hospitality and start leading people to those types of situations we're able to uh, shine light on those just like you're shining light on us right now well, we're super excited to have you here and, and to shine this little bit of light. Tell me, uh, as we come to the close here, tell me a little bit about, uh, I'm going to mispronounce it, I'm sure, Hojo? Hojo. Hojo. Yes, yeah. um, it's, a, it's a Navajo word uh, meaning kind of a beauty and balance. So balancing kind of a everyday type of life. In uh, my traditions and culture, There's we live in what's called a hogan. And that hogan is a, a eight-sided circular structure. And in living in that spirituality, as you walk through the hogan, it's an everyday reminder of, of the, the things that you're supposed to take care of. Self being the first one, which is uh, over on the east side. You go over to the west side, it's your family and community. To the north side or to the uh, west side is your economy, how you're taking care of yourself as far as like money is concerned or how you're able to take care of your cattle or your sheep or anything that has a value. And then to the north side is your spirituality side, whether that's uh, you going to church or whether that's just your spiritual side, uh, paying homage to nature, however that looks like for you. And then finding a balance between all of those elements from individualism, religious side and all of that to find a culmination where you're able to walk a path that is good and that good path looks different for everybody and I think that that's really what Hajon is is Hajon is is finding that inner peace inner balance for yourself well that's amazing yeah, and I'm that's really gorgeous. looking forward to to keeping up with what you all are doing next and hearing more and if our listener wanted to also follow along on on what you're doing and especially this uh, this foraging trip that's coming up soon. Uh, what are some great ways for them to follow along with your work and get in touch? Oh, yeah, most definitely. Um, Instagram is probably the best one. Uh, we tend to put up our um, stuff on our page at D-D-I-I underscore I-I-N-A underscore food, F-O-O-D. And that's just our Instagram handle uh, for our business page. My Instagram is... Um, at danielle.goldtooth and alan is uh, chef alan moore my page i promise is pretty blank she just keeps me working <laughs> <laughs> well i mean it's kind of ironic that we sit here talking about how like doom scrolling and and staring at our screens and you're out in the real world now but but, but you can find me by going onto your doom scroll <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> please if you're doom scrolling uh, Scroll past me. <laughs> yeah, at least uh, some happy parts of the doom can be found. Um, well, guys, this has been very enlightening and and uh, really interesting stuff. And yeah, you know, amazing. if we can get ourselves together, we we should boys, we should head out to to Arizona and see what's going on out there with these guys and and support it in any way that we can. Because you know, I don't disagree in any way that this is this is kind of where we need to go. We need to get kind of 
you know, the old back to basics kind of situation where we can have a greater understanding yeah. of like where things come from and how they get to us, especially the things I, that we're going to. I might actually be in Santa Fe in about a week and a half. So I'll hit you up uh, if I end up out there. <laughs> Maybe That's we can definitely. meet up somewhere. That would be great. Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. I will do that. If it's, it's one of those uh, things, like I, I usually go like twice a year and it's usually around this time. So uh, if we are going to be there, I will certainly hit you up so we can definitely, I, I, I just want to, I want to give you two hugs because this has been <laughs> so freaking great and I love what you're doing and I really, I love it and respect it. And thank you for, for taking this initiative to make the world a better place. Thank you guys. It was great talking to you and uh, I look forward to possibly seeing you on one of these trips at some point. (laughs) Absolutely. It's going to happen. Absolutely. Um, Well, I just want to throw in one last shot. You know, uh, my desert curse hot sauce uh, Kickstarter campaign ends in about eight days. Uh, If you haven't uh, gone on there to to get yourself a bottle of my hot sauce, please do. It's built for both culinary and mixology uses. Uh, It uses uh, habanero, pineapple and mezcal. It's great for drinks, great for food. Um, so go support me if you can. Uh, and, uh, I appreciate that. Pairs really Another well one. with mistake melons. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> Make a nice vinaigrette for mistake melons with desert curse. Hot sauce. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, that's it for this episode of the speakeasy. Thanks so much for tuning in. Um, you can find more great shows just like this one at heritage radio network.org. Also on the website, you can find uh, avenues for donating to keep uh, this show and many other shows just like it on the air. Uh, what a wonderful episode. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. Uh, and cheers, everybody. Cheers. 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 So you don't shun the devil with your rock. The Speakeasy is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food and drink radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe. It's going to get you some.